Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with rock climber Alex Honnold about life, climbing, and making the world a better place. Alex Honnold is a rock climber who was featured in both the book and film versions of A Better Life. He has also been seen on 60 Minutes and the cover of National Geographic magazine. In A Better Life, he wrote, To spend a whole day physically toiling, fearful and anxious about the weather and the difficult climbing, and then to break free from it all and top out amidst the most beautiful sunset of my life, the mountains wreathed in snow, and the sun setting it all aflame with light. That is why I climb. It sounds even more lovely when you read it like that. Like, wow. But yeah. You, you wonder, did I actually write that? No, no. I, I don't normally write such like flowering descriptions, but it was quite a lovely sunset. And it was like a pretty amazing experience. So you and I met four years ago, which seems like forever, right? Yeah, I'm surprised it's only four, honestly. It feels like so long ago. <laughs> We're old now. That's what it is. What have you been doing during that past four years? Um, I mean, I've just been doing the same thing I was doing for all the years before. I've just been traveling and climbing nonstop. So I've just basically been like living on the road and, and, you know, going trip to trip expedition, um, and just like climbing full time. But then it's like, I guess it feels even crazier because then I also like my, uh, my book came out and so I did a book tour and I did this like tour of South America. And so I've done a lot of like work events too, that are like even more hectic and like more, I don't know, pretty packed schedule, you know? And you've actually in a way been traveling with me when I've been traveling with the book and with the movie because people are captivated by you in the film. People always want to, some of the, the you know, the, the um, most frequent questions I get are questions about you. It's funny because when I read the book, you know, I, I felt like mine was the most out of place and the like least, you know, consequential. Because like, <laughs> you look at stuff with like Richard Dawkins and you're like, that's a guy that has something to say about life. But, you know, like a homeless guy that lives in a car and climbs all the time, you're just kind of like, well, I mean, like, what's what's he going to say about the world? I think that's why it is the most interesting for people. Yeah, maybe it's the most like different. So, some of the, the most frequent questions I get are people saying, oh, isn't he scared? How does how does he do that? That's incredible. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. I mean, in interviews and stuff like I pretty much generally talk about fear and risk and death and all that kind of stuff. There, There is one aspect of that that I actually do want to touch on for a moment. Um, and that is slightly personal. And that's, you know, when you and I met in Yosemite, one of the friends that we spent some time with there uh, when you were doing some bouldering um, passed away a few years later in a sporting accident. Does an experience like that change how you see your own life or the risks that you take in your work? Um, not entirely. I mean, yeah. So you're talking about my, my friend, Sean Leary, who is like a great climber, died in a base jumping accident um, or wingsuiting, I suppose. And um, I mean, you know, that was pretty heavy. But then at the same time, I mean, you know, it's easy to justify away, sort of, because you're like, well, wingsuiting is super dangerous. And like, I mean, your odds of, of death with wingsuiting are like quite high. So you're kind of like, well, I mean, it's not shocking that that happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Actually, another a year later or no, I guess two years later, um, uh, Dean Potter died in like a very similar accident, who was also like a really well-known climber and, and a bit of a friend. Yeah, I mean, both of those like certainly make you reflect on the choices you're you're making in life and you know reflect on life and death and all that kind of stuff but but ultimately you're just kind of like well you know i mean when you do really dangerous things it's not that surprising if you if if you die you know did it change any of the risks that you take um no not really 
mostly because the things that I'm doing, I feel comfortable with to begin with. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's always good to like rethink that and just make sure that you're still like within your comfort zone and that, you know, you're happy with what you're doing. And so, I mean, after they died, I mean, I did definitely spend some time sort of thinking about if my actions were in line with, with my values, all that kind of stuff, you know, like, is this the life I want to be leading? You know, is it worth it? Whatever. But yeah, ultimately, I mean, I'm, you know, it's not as if I'm trying to, to die, like, just because somebody else dies and reminds you that it is a dangerous sport. I mean, you're, you're still doing your best to, to maintain your own personal safety all the time. One thing that I tell people when they ask about you is that, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, but my answer uh, about you is that you take these risks, but at the same time, you're smart enough to know the risks that you don't want to take and the things that are too dangerous. And so that, you know, you don't free solo everything. You free solo certain things, but you also do your research ahead of time and you, you use ropes when you feel like you need to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's funny, though, because... Um... Yeah, I mean, for sure, I try to be calculated about the risks that, I, that I'm that i willing to take and the ones that I'm not willing to and, you know, knowing the difference and, and being able to know when to say when and all that kind of stuff. Though it is kind of a dangerous thing to be like, oh, I'm smart enough to know better or whatever. I feel like when people start thinking like, oh, well, I'm, I'm good enough or I'm smart enough, you know, that's when you start like get, I don't know. I mean, because there is like some degree of random chance involved mm-hmm. and there's like, and yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of luck and just whatever, but... I don't know, you just, I mean, you do your best and try to navigate it. The thing is, though, that's also true for anybody in everyday life. I mean, there's a certain amount of luck in, like, not being hit by a car on any given day. You know what I mean? It's like, though your odds are infinitely smaller of, like, being run over than they are of, like, say, falling off a cliff or something if you're free soloing. But um, I don't know. Basically, it's like, you know, all of life is sort of an odds game. It's just, like, which ones you're willing to take and everything. And it does affect you psychologically, right? I mean, there is a difference for you in how you feel when you're five feet off the ground versus 5,000 feet off the ground, right? Yeah, for sure. Or there's a difference between five and 50, and then there's probably not a big difference between 50 and 500 or 5,000. Because at a certain point, you're just kind of like, you know, the difference between like, this is not serious, which is five feet, and the difference, and this is serious, which is 50 feet. Like once it's serious, it doesn't really change as you get higher, you know, because it's like, well, it's like you are now in a serious situation. You have to like pay serious attention and like, really make sure you're doing things well. And it has affected you before. You've had moments climbing very high up where you kind of have a little freak out moment in a way. Yeah, but that's not so much because of, that's not because I was high off the ground or because it was super scary. That's more because the climbing was more difficult than I expected. And so I felt like the chance of falling off was suddenly higher than I was willing to, to, to push. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. because the consequences are sort of the same regardless. Like, once you're kind of high off the ground, like, the consequences of falling are, like, basically death. But, you know, the risk or, like, the chance of falling off, though, is generally quite low as long as I've, you know, as long as I'm fit and well-prepared and all that kind of stuff. But then occasionally you get into some climbing where you're suddenly like, oh, this feels harder than I want it to be or, like, this isn't quite right. And so then you start to worry that, that you might actually fall off and then it's kind of scary. What do you do in those moments? I mean, it depends. I mean, there's a whole assortment of, of options. I mean, you could just start climbing back down. You could like just hang out on some spot and just like, you know, scream for help or something or like hope that somebody comes and gets you in like a day, you know? I mean, typically I've, I've just sort of like composed myself, you know, taken some deep breaths, pulled it back together and then just like made whatever move I need to to like get through that situation. But I mean, it's funny because people think of, of free soloing as like do or die, you know, like once you start, if you don't make it to the top, you're going to die. But there's actually often like a lot of options where like you could get to a hard part and then if it feels too hard. You can like think about escaping in a different direction. Like, 
you know, maybe traversing laterally to one side or another to find easier terrain or maybe going back down or maybe like sitting and waiting. Plus, I mean, nowadays I always have my phone in my pocket because I'm like listening to music or doing whatever. It's like you just call one of your friends and be like, please come hike to the top of this thing with 600 <laughs> feet of line and come in and get me, you know, <laughs> which would be like really embarrassing, but still kind of, you know, still still an option if it comes down to life or death. So you've never done that before? No, I haven't. But like I've, I've heard of some friends and stuff having people run around and and rescue not on huge mountains but on like uh you know like 100 foot cliffs but <laughs> and actually i mean you know, actually once upon a time uh i was free soloing a small cliff that was maybe 80 feet high in this quarry in england and uh some of my friends were watching me and i actually felt fine and i was like in control and and you know i ultimately i did the climb but it like took me a little while to like figure out the hardest part so i was kind of going up and down through the hard part trying to figure out exactly how i wanted to do it and my friends who were watching it's like really unnerving to watch that kind of thing obviously because since you don't really know what's going on in their head, all you see is that like your buddy is struggling up in the middle of the space, and if he fails, he's gonna die. You know, and you're like, it's kind of traumatizing to watch. So one of my friends freaking like wind sprinted to the top of the to the top of the route with like a hundred foot rope, like in case he had to to rescue me. He said it was like the most strenuous thing he'd done on the whole trip, like running uphill as fast as he could with a rope, because he's like, oh my god, <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> but I mean, it worked out being fine. You know, like I felt fine and got to the top, and there's nothing. And for you, you weren't, it didn't, you know, you didn't know any of that was going on. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know that was going on at all. I was fully focused on what I was doing and I, I figured it out, felt comfortable and did it. But, you know, I mean, for my friends, you don't really know like the internal process. It's like, I mean, and, and even for me, like if I'm watching other people solo, I find it extremely, or it can be extremely unnerving. The experience for you is much different from what people see, I think. I don't know. I mean, in, in some ways, maybe it's like being a, a high diver or something in the Olympics, you know, like, uh. Because like if you watch a high diver, just like this it looks like this crazy. I don't know. You look, it looks like somebody diving into a pool, mm-hmm. you know, from high up, and it like looks scary and whatever. So I'm I'm willing to bet that like what's going through a diver's head as they jump off the board has like nothing to do with the pool, has nothing to do with like falling a long distance, and has everything to do with like, you know, what their body is doing as they like turn and 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 twirl around in the air. You know what I mean? Like, I would, I would think that their performance is fully, like, internal with, like, okay, tuck my shoulders, tighten my hips, make sure my knees are up, and straighten, and extend the toes, and arms straight, and, oh, into the water. You know what I mean? Something like that. Mm-hmm. As to, like, whereas when you watch it, you're seeing the whole performance from a more, you're just like, oh, my God, that guy's flying towards the water at top speed, you know? Like, that looks crazy. And that's how you see climbing in general, or just free soloing? Well, climbing in general has tons and tons of, like, really subtle movement like that, like, um, you know, really precise movements of your hands and feet. Hmm. And and then soloing, you know, is has those has that same requirement, but then just like with higher consequences. It's interesting. In like all the years of interviews I've done, I've never had to come up with sports analogies that are like <laughs> soloing. Well, that's what I tried to do. I tried to make my interviews different. I bet being a matador, you know, like when you're watching a matador in the ring, uh-huh. you're just like, oh, that guy is like running around trying not to get cored by that bull. You know, but I'm sure if you are the matador, there's like much more precise things going on you're probably like seeing the shift in weight and the bulls you know like sort of anticipating which way it's going to move and like trying to figure out which way you're moving not that i condone bullfighting in any way because i think it's totally totally barbaric which brings us to the environment which is i know something you're very passionate about right yeah i mean it's funny it's kind of cliche to be like i'm passionate about the environment because like what, what does that mean exactly but um but i am outdoors like pretty much full time and and I've started uh, the Honol Foundation a few years ago. I've been trying to support like environmental nonprofits and like basically to do something positive in the world. You know, I mean, I guess the general desire to like do something positive for the world, I guess that makes you, you know, passionate about the environment. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. And you also wrote a book called Alone on the Wall. Yeah, the Alone on the Wall, um, which I co-wrote with David Roberts, who's who's like the real brains behind it. Um, I mean, Alone on the Wall is just a memoir. It's just kind of like a greatest hits of, of my climbing for the last, you know, eight or 10 years. Um, it doesn't really delve as much into like the environmental issues. I mean, it, I, I do talk a bit about the foundation and like why the motivations behind it. I mean, it's not exactly like a comprehensive memoir. It's kind of like, these are the climbs that I'm most proud of so far. And like that, this is what led to them. You know, this is the preparation. Like, I mean, in in some ways it's also because like, there's so much information about me out there, like with different interviews and profiles and like videos and clips here and there and like YouTube stuff. Like there's a lot of like disparate knowledge about me and it was kind of nice to pull it all back together into like one one collection that I actually, you know, had a hand in editing just because like it kind of allowed me to like take control of my whole like story again a little bit. It sounds kind of fruity. You said take control of my story. You know, <laughs> it's like it sounds, but, um, but you know what I mean? Like there's just so much information out there. You want to be able to pull it back together and like share it the way you want it to be shared. Right. You can tell your story from your perspective. Yeah. And slightly more comprehensively because there's, you know, I mean, if somebody watches a YouTube clip and then reads a profile, they're getting like random snapshots of like different parts of my life at different time. It's nice to put it into chronological order and be like, these are the roots that I did in this order. This is the progression. Like, this is what I've kind of learned along the way. You know, and it gives a much more complete view of, you know, my climbing today. Part of writing Alone on the Wall is just because, um, like, David is a friend of mine who I'd worked with, and he'd co-written books with several of my friends. And so I kind of knew what that would entail. And he was, you know, basically, it was like a good learning opportunity. You know, it's kind of like a warm up for later in life. Is he a climber as well? Yeah, he did. Um, I mean, he's quite old now, but um, he did like 20 expeditions to Alaska when he was younger. He did tons of first ascents in Alaska back when it was more like classical mountaineering and stuff. Um, you know, like the 60s, he was doing a ton of ton of expeditionary stuff. And yeah, so he's, he is quite a climber. And he's quite a like, he's, he's really into the history of climbing. You know, he's like an adventurer in the, the classical sense. What was the experience like writing the book? Did you meet up together and write it together or did you kind of write separately um so david has co-written several books and he kind of had a process that he likes which is that he came out to where i was climbing and um basically like stayed in this area where i was climbing for a week and so we did maybe like 40 hours of interviews over the course of a week which is doesn't really sound like that crazy but it's honestly like kind of exhausting to just talk about yourself for 40 hours in a week you know you're like, oh, I'm going to sit down and talk about myself for eight hours straight. You're like, Jesus Christ. It's like, it's kind of a lot. But um, so like he felt that that sort of allows him to like get into your head a little bit. And then he used that to sort of like, you know, fill out the show. And I don't know if you've seen Alone on the Wall, but it's um, it's split between two voices. It's like half in his voice, half in mine, because he felt that having like a third person narrator would sort of help you know put things into the proper perspective because he felt like if it was all in my voice it would sound too understated and there would be no it would just be like oh and then i went climbing it was fun like that was nice and then i climbed some more that was fun too it wouldn't have the proper like this is a groundbreaking ascent which i don't know you know again i was like oh that sounds kind of douchey but i just sort of deferred to his opinion that like if he felt like it would make a stronger book then i'm like power to you you know you he's written like 28 books so i was kind of like you know, I'm sure he, he knows what's best. And so then he, he wrote, you know, half the book in his voice. And then he sort of took everything that I've ever written, like essays and articles, like things in, in like wide ranging climbing magazines and stuff like around the world and like collected all those essays and sort of like, you know, crafted it all together um, into like my first person parts. And then we both edited and then rewrote and just like made sure the, the, the tone is all right and everything. And then, you know, I mean, the whole process took six months which is not really like that long for, for pulling together a book. 
but it's because David's like quite a prolific writer like that. And he just like likes to work hard on those kinds of things, mm-hmm. which was part of the appeal of doing it with him because it didn't seem like too daunting of an undertaking. You know, he was like, Oh, we'll be done by Christmas. And I was like, Oh wow, that's pretty cool. Like, let's check it out. You know, I can definitely understand what you mean about having to sit for 40 hours of interviews. That sounds exhausting. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, it was surprisingly, surprisingly tiring, (laughs) but talk about yourself for eight hours a day. Yeah. And then you start to worry that it's like making you a worse person. You're like, huh. I mean, just in general, always doing interviews and stuff, even like, you know, podcasts and things like this, when you're only talking about yourself all the time, you're like, is this making me a worse person? Why do you say that? Well, because you don't want to be totally self, self-centered self all the time. You know, you don't want to, and you don't want to wind up with this like skewed opinion that, that somehow your experience is like more worth talking about than other people's experience. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, we could be doing this whole interview about like your last four years of traveling and like talking about the book and you know what I mean? Like you've mm-hmm. met all kinds of interesting people, you've done interesting things, you've like written this book, you like made a movie out of it. You know what I mean? Like there's just as much like interesting stuff going on there. You know what I mean? So. Well. Thank you for that. Um. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's like everybody has a story. You know, everybody has like an interesting past or or something. You know, I mean, you don't want to get sucked into like, well, my story is that much cooler than everybody else's. You're like, whatever. And that's actually one of the things that I wanted to do with the book and with the film is not just have well-known people or celebrities, but everyday people as well. People who are just doing all kinds of things so that people reading the book can relate to everybody. Yeah, I actually really like that about the book. Wasn't there, was there like a really young airline pilot in the book? Uh-huh, yeah. Like, I remember that guy. It's like totally, you're like, oh, there's like a random normal dude, you know? <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, and and the reaction from people all over the world to it has been incredible. You know, people who who can relate in a way that even I didn't even you know, because I, I wasn't raised in a religious environment, so I didn't really have a kind of coming out process and all that. And so people who read the book and are really inspired by it, um, just it makes my day or my week or my year, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I was I was I was inspired by it, too, honestly. Thank you. Like, I can see how the um, I can see how like a normal dude like that in a lot of ways that airline pilot is more inspiring to me than reading like the Dawkins section or something. You know, and I obviously have read Dawkins' books. So, like, you know, you're slightly like, oh, that guy's already a dude. I don't know. It just seems more relatable. You're like, oh, that's somebody who's more like me, you know, as opposed to, like, a PhD who's, like, spent his entire lifetime in academics. Yeah. And for me as well, when I'm on the road, it's kind of the everyday people that I meet who have a story to tell. Those are the most interesting moments, you know? I have several of my my best climbing partners, actually, are, like, ex-religious folks who like were particularly devout as, as young people and then basically like fell away from the church and, and are now homeless rock climbers. But it's, it's pretty funny. Do you have any religious rock climber friends? Um, I do know a couple. They do exist, but they're very, very rare. So atheism is pretty much the thing in rock climbing. Yeah, either atheism or like vague spirituality. You know, people who are like, oh, I just think there's some kind of higher force or like, you know, some kind of well-being in the universe, you know, just like real like hippie style. <laughs> like you know connectedness or whatever uh-huh. which, which i kind of just take as atheism because i'm kind of like you know when you have like such a vague spirituality you're just kind of like I, I don't know it just doesn't mean anything to me no with with the climbing community though it's a pretty safe bet that like most climbers are atheists but why do you think that is oh uh, i don't know i mean you know if you had to guess i mean partially the demographics kind of line up that like you know climbing is mostly like upper middle class you know like people of privilege you know it's kind of like 
you only get into it if you have a certain, uh, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like certain needs are all met before you like start spending your time rock climbing. So like right there is like probably a higher level of education than average. So it's funny because I'm a dropout. I actually have a lower level of education than, than average. But you know, I mean, those are kind of all the same sorts of demographics that like fit atheism in general, you know? Then climbing also has kind of like a culture, like a very free thinking, like counterculture type element to it. I mean, and historically it was more like misfits and rebels and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So it's all just like the sort of fringes of society that, that, you know, don't really meld with organized religion that well. People living in their vans? Yeah, exactly. Homeless people. And you're still in your van, right? uh, No, I'm in a better van now though. Um, so I am still in my van, but I got a better one. You have a new after, van? After nine years of my old van, I got sick of not being able to stand up. So now I have a bigger van. A bigger van? Oh, wow. I know. Moving up in the world. Wow, look at you. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so classy. <laughs> is it like an like, RV? Like, what? what is it? No, it's still just like a full size. It's like a Sprinter. Uh, it's a Dodge Promaster, which is like same size as like a Sprinter van, things like that. So it's oh. like a full size van that you can stand in. And, you know, I have like a fridge and stuff. Uh, speaking of fridges... Uh, when I first met you, you'd just become a vegetarian. Are you still a vegetarian? Yeah, yeah, still a vegetarian. Um, though I hate to, like, I don't know. I mean, I was in Morocco in September for a month, and, uh, you know, while I was there, I ate meat, like, a handful of times, partially just because, I mean, basically just because it was hard to get food. <laughs> you know, and there were a couple of days where I was like, well, that chicken looks really good, <laughs> you know, so, um, because I basically went vegetarian for, like, environmental reasons, and then, and then sort of the ethical reasons started to appeal to me more like after I'd stopped eating meat for, for a year or so, let's say. Mm-hmm. But then still when I travel a lot, I'll, I'll occasionally eat random things. But in general, though, over the course of the year, I probably eat meat, you know, a handful of servings. Right. I think it was Sam Harris who was talking about it. It's interesting how we think of vegetarianism as being kind of an all or nothing thing. Yeah, totally. You know? I'm like that. I've sort of ignored that side of it because mm-hmm. like I, I feel comfortable calling myself a vegetarian, but at the same time, like. I just don't really want to deal with people being like, well, you're not technically a vegetarian because, you know, you ate this or that and you're like, whatever. And, you know, like the, the last day in Morocco, we went to a sushi restaurant and I was like, like our last night in Marrakesh and I ate like this whole freaking boatload of sushi despite the fact that I know that it's terrible for the earth and that it's like, ter- you know, it's basically just bad in general. Mm-hmm. But I just like hadn't really had any food. Like, you know, I was just like, oh, this just sounds good right now. And I was like, you know what? It's better to eat sushi like one day in the last three years than to, you know, basically I'm just not that stressed. You know what I mean? It's still like a much smaller impact than I would, than I'd be having if I ate sushi all the time. You know what I mean? Right, right. And making it an all or nothing thing, I think turns a lot of people off from even trying in the first place. Exactly. That's the thing is I feel like it's better not to like throw away the baby with the bathwater or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I'm still having like an infinitely smaller impact than I would be, you know, but it's like the occasional serving here or there. And actually I'll frequently eat meat if, uh, if it's going to be wasted anyway, like, um, like a while back in an airport, I ordered like a veggie burger, but like a certain type, you know, it was like, can I have the California burger, but like with like veggie. And so they served the burger and it was like a vegetarian burger, but it still had bacon on it. And I was like, wait, you guys kind of missed the point of the veggie deal. You know, I was like, I don't really want the bacon on it. Cause like, you know, I had like the avocado and bacon or whatever. And I was just like, Oh man. But then it's like, you know, I'm not just going to like throw it away because that's still a colossal waste of resources. And so, and you know, the bacon's already been cooked and served. And so I'm like, oh, I might as well eat it. I don't know. But things like that where it's like, well, if it's just going to be thrown away, it's better to be eaten than, than discarded. What was Morocco like? Oh, it was awesome. I freaking loved Morocco. It was my third time there. I spent like three weeks this time. I'd spent, you know, three or four weeks on previous trips. 
mm-hmm. but it's really cool. What makes it so amazing for you? Um, well, actually, so the climbing area, it's kind of like, it's like the Yosemite of limestone, this place called Tagia, it's like this village in the Atlas mountains. But, um, and so it, there's like no road access to the village. Like you go to the end of the road and then you like take these, take, you know, mules or donkeys, like with your stuff and then hike for a couple hours to get to the actual village. So you're like fully in the middle of nowhere and you just get the like major rural experience. You know, you're just like, they basically serve the same, the same tagine for dinner every night. And it's like couscous with vegetables and you can like see the women in the field, like out the window picking the vegetables. And then you like eat them for dinner that night. And you're just like, well, pretty simple. I mean, it means that you're eating the same like potatoes and carrots and stuff like every day. But at the same time, you're like, well, this is like how, you know, a billion people in the world live. So it's like kind of a good reminder. But mostly the climbing is also like off the hook. So it's 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 like kind of the right combination of like really good climbing with also like a really impressive cultural experience. Mm. So it's just like, it's a pretty powerful place, you know? How is traveling over the past four years all over the world, has, has that changed you at all in any way? Changed your view of the world? Um, yeah, no, I think I think travel has probably changed me more than any other part of my life, for sure. Um, I mean, and it's made me like, it's made me more and more liberal, I guess, <laughs> you know, or like more and more left. And, and like maybe slightly more caring and more, maybe more compassion, I don't know but definitely like more socialistic. I guess just being constantly reminded that there are like billions of people out there with far less than, than I have, or like than, than all of us in the U S have, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like that reminder that, that there are like more important things going on. Has, has that influenced you in any particular way about a direction that you want to go? Well, I mean, you know, it's subtle. I mean, I started the Hano foundation. I've been trying to support like environmental nonprofits that, that improve standard of living. So like things that help lift people out of poverty by, you know, through environmental protection or whatever else, um, which mostly is just meant like solar projects and things. Mm. But, um, I don't know. I mean, and honestly, like the environmental issues, I mean, those are all sort of social issues as well. Like by, you know, the vegetarianism and things like that, when you like opt out of supporting like big, terrible farming practices, you're also sort of at the same time, then sort of supporting all the people that I don't know. It's, I mean, it's all just so complicated, but just trying to do like what's best when you can. I don't know. I'm just like, oh, it's so heavy. It's so like, I mean, Yosemite, and it's like raining super hard all day. And I'm just like, what a dreary day to think about, like, the fate of the earth, you know? You're like, oh, man. Sorry to be a downer, Alex. No, I mean, that's, you know, sometimes you got to think about the heavy issues. People know you as a rock climber, and hopefully through A Better Life and some other things, people also know, in your book, people also know that you're an extremely well-rounded person and a, a lifelong learner. Um, besides climbing, what other things would you like to accomplish in your life? I don't know how to put it exactly other than just to do something positive. You know, like, I don't really know how that'll play out exactly. I mean, I'm still relatively young and, um, you know, hopefully I live a very long time and have plenty of time to like find the best way to have a, have a positive impact. But I mean, I would like to think that like when I die, the world is like a better place because I lived or, you know, is left a better place. You know, I don't know, maybe that'll be through environmental stuff, maybe that's through the foundation or like, you know, helping people in poverty or, or who knows. Um, I mean, I'm sort of open to like whatever winds up being the best. And I mean, you know, maybe I'll wind up getting into business or something or getting into politics or who knows what. But, you know, hopefully I'll find some way to like do something that has, has a positive impact on the world. I don't know. What, what do you think you're going to do to the world? You know, it, it's funny because people have asked me that same question as well. Um, and I, I actually say something similar, which is I don't actually know 
specifically what I want to do, but I know that I want to make a difference and I don't know what that's going to be, but I don't even know what my next project is going to be. Yeah, that's, that's always, I've always been the exact same way, like more like a to-do list with tons of little things rather than like a huge overarching dream, you know? It's interesting because a few years ago, I actually did have quite a, a detailed little list of like things that I could do to make the world a better place, you know, like simple things like changing my banking and like going vegetarian and like, um, you know, things involving my mom's house and just like basic things that would minimize my impact or sort of like put my money into better places and like doing better things and just whatever. And like now that I've sort of done all those things, I'm, you know, I'm kind of left with like, huh, well, I'm not really sure like what the next step is, you know, like beyond that and like making sure that I vote every year and things like that. But beyond those kinds of things, you're like, oh, I don't know what the next like obvious step is. Climbing, I kind of always have like training goals and goals and objectives and all that kind of stuff. So you have like a really clear cut, like these are the things I'm working for. You know, this is what I'll do to try to get there. I don't know, with environmental issues or like bigger, like, you know, global poverty issues or things like that. You know, I mean, it would be helpful if there was like a clear cut like ladder like that where you just like work your way through it can be very overwhelming because there is so much that we need to do in the world and so much suffering and so much social inequality and all that it can be daunting i mean i think maybe the thing is just to choose the the small part that you're the most interested in and then just sort of dive into it you know like know that you're never going to be able to tackle like such an overwhelming problem head on just sort of like choose the pieces that that you can deal with and start there you know i mean that's kind of been through my foundation that's what we've been doing i mean you know, we're giving grants to other other uh, nonprofits and stuff and sort of choosing the projects that we can support. And I mean, I know that it's not like going to change the world. It's not the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or something that can like pump billions of dollars into things. But, you know, it's better than doing nothing. And at least it's like starting somewhere. Like, like I said, it's a rain day today. So like the rest of the day, I'll be like chilling and like socializing with my friends and doing whatever. And you're like, oh, those hours I could have spent like writing an essay or something, you know, writing op-eds, writing some article or like, you know, researching some project I could be doing. But then you're just like, man, I'd so much rather just chill, you know, which is sort of an important thing, like as an athlete or whatever, as a climber. I mean, you need the actual rest time to like rest your body and just relax and like get ready for, for your next round of like hard workouts and stuff or like hard climbing. But then at the same time, you're like, man, maybe I should be trying to do something more useful with my life. You're doing a lot. Yeah, but I mean, you can always do more, you know? Yeah, it is hard, though. Normally, when you do interviews, you like just talk about how rad you are the whole time. This is more like an interview about how you should be doing more for the world and how like how lazy I am. I'm just like, oh, man, like, yeah, we're going to get off this and, and I'm just going to have to like go go work all day or something to try to like whip myself into shape. That's what I try to do. I try to make people feel, make people feel bad in my interviews with them. Nobody listens to your podcast. They're too depressed afterward. <laughs> They're like, "Oh man, I got to do something with my life." Sucks. Right, a better life doesn't isn't just going to come through us doing nothing. You know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe that's why people don't like atheists. You know, because it's like just it's too depressing. It's it's funny because I was at a event the other day and and some uh, somebody asked about that and and I said, you know, you know, being an atheist is liberating. You know, because there is no God you know, giving us direction or, you know, things we need to do. But at the same time, it means we have a lot more responsibility. Yeah, it puts like a crushing weight on your shoulders because you're like, if there are problems with the world, you have to fix them. And you're like, oh, man, that's a lot to fix. Right. It's a lot easier to just freaking pray. I mean, think about that, like, you know, either you can like spend the whole day trying to figure out how to like alleviate world poverty, or you can just like say a prayer before bed and be like, well, I did my part. You know, like one of those is a lot easier than the other. <laughs> 
hopefully people who are praying are also like, you know, working hard at it and like actually trying to alleviate poverty. You know, you're like, oh, there are, you know, 7 billion people in the world and I'm one of 7 billion. And like all my hopes and dreams and aspirations are just like a tiny little drop in this ocean of humanity. You know, like, and then on the national scale, it's kind of the same thing, you know, like the 300 or 350 million people in the US or whatever. I mean, it's just like, it's just not that important in the global scale, even though our consumption is like way oversized. And, you know, I mean, we do have an oversized impact, but it's still like there just aren't that many people here compared to the rest of the world. It's just like, there's a lot of humanity that has a lot of different needs. You know, think of the billion people on earth who are like mired in abject poverty, like living like stone age level existence. I mean, that's like a billion people who could be, you know, like the next Albert Einstein or whatever, you know, who could be like the geniuses of earth. Mm-hmm. But instead, they're like carrying buckets of water from the well back to like water their goats all day, you know, and you're, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, you just hate to see all that like wasted humanity. Like there's so many people who like will never, you know, who could be like pilots or astronauts or like whatever, you know, like interesting, like, diff, you know, challenging careers and stuff. And instead, they're just like never going to have an education and they're just like, yeah, substance style living forever. And it wouldn't even mean that much of a sacrifice on our part to make their lives better yeah but that's exactly and that's why i have the foundation stuff going i mean we can you can do so much and actually pretty much have a similar quality of life yourself but yet we still don't do that have you ever read um the life you can save by peter singer no but it's on my list of books to read dude you definitely should it's like a great book but um but yeah i mean it basically talks about that stuff like the sort of moral responsibility to like do good you know to like to improve lives when you can when it like does you no harm that book more than anything else like succinctly summarizes like all the things that i care about you know i mean i've been giving sort of i mean i'm giving maybe a third of my income through the foundation to environmental stuff mm-hmm. and the thing is that that doesn't affect the quality of my life at all you know what i mean like i have very low overhead i'm living in my van i'm like having a good time doing what i love to do and so for me to give away a third of my income is like you know, it's not as if that ever keeps me up at night and contributes to my suffering in any way. And yet, hopefully, it's alleviating quite a bit of suffering in the rest of the world. And so, like, to me, that's a very obvious moral decision. You know, like, that's something that I'm sort of, like, obligated to do. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of wish more people saw things. I wish everybody would read that book, you know, especially in the U.S., where in general, incomes are so high, mm-hmm. like, in a very general sense. I mean, so many people have so much they could or should be giving. But I don't know. I think people just don't quite see it as their obligation like that. And we value money over everything else in our society. Yeah, I know. It's weird. Doing this screening tour and lecture tour stuff is not making me any money. In fact, it costs a little bit more money than I make to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do it because it's it's incredibly rewarding. Um, I kind of feel like that's like the only way that important things happen in the world is when somebody finds something that they find really fulfilling and just like charges ahead whether or not it makes sense, whether or not people, you know, agree with it necessarily, but like, you know, like you find it important and you go and you just take it ahead. I mean, which is kind of like the way that my climbing has been, you know, like I've just, for whatever reason, I'm like compelled to do this kind of stuff and I care about it and I care about it deeply and I put a lot of work into it. And then now I've sort of gotten all this like external validation from, from whatever, you know, say 60 minutes and stuff. Mm. But like, you know, I mean, it all happened because I was like, I'm really into this and I'm just going to do it and like F everybody that tells me that it doesn't make sense. You know, I'm just like, screw them all. I'm just going to do my thing. And you didn't do it to be on 60 minutes. That wasn't your motivation. Your motivation was because you really loved it. 
Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I feel like had that been my motivation, I don't think I ever would have gotten to the same place. You know what I mean? Like, I never would have gotten that good at it because, like, I don't know. I think the internal motivation like that is the only way to, like, really push hard. Yeah, heavy. I know, right? <laughs> just stuck to, like, death and fear conversations the whole time because that's all, like, easy for me because I'm like, oh, I've done that interview a thousand times. It's no problem. I like to mix it up. I don't ask everybody about death and fear, but, you know. You're like, I like most of my interviews to end in tears. You know, like, I, I wait for I wait for my subjects to just burst into tears, and then I just call it good. Such a, it's such a better life. Through crying. Yeah. Like, atheism. It makes you cry every day. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that you're all alone in this big, dark world full of suck hardship. It is scary. I mean, that's the thing. The, the responsibility is there, but also the scare, the, the scariness is there. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's all on you to have a good life. Listen, thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with me, Alex. No, my pleasure. Always fun to chat about something different. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash the atheist book. Special thanks to Michael Trollin for his support. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life or the 2016 screening tour, visit theatheistbook.com.